This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, I know that sound. In fact, I love that sound. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify actually is amazing. It gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. What I'm saying is, scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Believe me. I mean, you wouldn't believe how this podcast started, and what we were selling when we started, and what we're selling right now. Shopify. I love how Shopify has the tools and the resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. I'm telling you, Shopify powers over millions of businesses just like ours from first sale to full scale. So reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash roam, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash r-o-m-e right now. Shopify.com slash r-o-m-e. And I would wait to hear the song Lust for Life to come on so then I could listen to your radio show and sometimes I would just drive around for two hours and listen to it. There are still things from that period of your career I remember so vividly. Like the idea of Isaiah Thomas going to a Red Lobster. I remember that being a huge part of it. Hey, now it's cracking. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. Now we did drop an all-timer from Radio Row last week with Hall of Famer Michael Irvin, and it still holds. So if you missed that, you want to make sure you go back and check that out. You're going to want to stay right here and give this one a spin first because this week's guest might not have a gold jacket, but that does not mean that this conversation is not another total banger. Spoiler alert, it absolutely is. My guest this week is the best-selling author of numerous books, including his latest, the one we're talking about right now, The 90s, a book. My guest this week is Chuck Klosterman. Now, if you do not know Chuck, you're about to be blown away because my man is extremely intelligent, extremely knowledgeable, extremely engaging. He's just different. He knows pop culture. He knows music. He knows sports. He knows politics. He pretty much knows it all. And as you're about to find out, he knows all about the jungle. I am incredibly fired up for you to hear this conversation, so let's not waste another second, and let's get right to it. It's Ep 209 with best-selling author Chuck Klosterman, and it's coming at you right now. Oh, oh, oh. 
So, Chuck, it's been a moment or two since you and I have gotten together, so it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for this. How are you and yours before we get started? Well, you know, pretty good. I mean, my wife's a writer and I'm a writer, so during this whole pandemic, we were probably more like well-positioned to deal with it than most people because we could be with our kids all day and control our schedule. And I live in Portland, Oregon now, kind of on the outskirts of town. So relative to the rest of the world, uh, great. I mean, it was still an extremely difficult time, <laughs> probably the hardest year of my adult life for sure. But I'm I'm very good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm kind of like you. I was kind of fortunate in the sense that we were set up in, in a small environment, a small work environment. So we were, for whatever reason, and <laughs> I have no idea why this is, but we were deemed necessary and we were able to continue doing what we normally do. So there wasn't <laughs> much change there. So that was nice. So I agree with you. But let me ask you, your 12th book is out right now, and it's entitled simply The 90s, a book. It's a fascinating decade, to say the least. What was it like for you to take this on and go back and write about the 90s specifically? Well, you know, in some ways, just I guess referencing what we just discussed, it was kind of wonderful to <laughs> transport back in time for five or six hours a day. What I would do, because uh, I wrote this during, you know, 2020 mostly, I would get up at about five and I would go out to my office and from five until 10, I would just sort of exist in the past. And then at 10 o'clock, I would sort of re-enter reality, which, of course, was not, you know, <laughs> which complicated and worrisome and, you know, seemingly just one catastrophe after another. Um, but uh, to, to be able to sort of transport back to that time a little bit every day, I think probably kind of helped me feel mentally okay during this period. You know? I, I get that. So, Chuck, for instance, when did the 1990s, in your mind, officially start? For instance, was it January 1st of that year, or was it another time? Well, you know, yeah, like like culture and decades, you, you could look at a calendar, but those aren't really how things are framed. The con- Kind of the conventional understanding of the 90s now seems to be that it kind of began late in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell and ends at 9-11. And my book does end on 9-11 you know, of 2001. However, I start the 90s not with the fall of the Berlin Wall, but with the release of Nirvana's Nevermind. And the reason I did that was because I feel like the, ni- the year 1990 was still kind of the 80s on autopilot. A lot of the things that we associate with the 1980s were still very much happening in 1990. I mean, like, you know, Joe Montana was still the best player in the NFL. Cheers was still the most popular show, even though there was things like Twin Peaks kind of on the fringe. You know, People were still buying things through catalogs. Nobody had cell phones. When you get to 1991, though, and you get the release of that record, there is sort of a cultural shift and a rippling effect in a non-musical way that kind of starts with that record. So I'm framing the 90s as basically fall of 91 to of 2001. Got it. All right. So now what I'm going to do, I'm the, I'm going to pick my spots very carefully because if you read this book, there's music, there's politics, there's sports, there's culture, there are a million different things. So I will pick my spots. But since the decade officially starts there for you, let me ask you this. You were heavy, heavy into glam metal growing up. You make no apologies for it. So did you push back hard on grunge when you first heard it? How did you reconcile the two? Or maybe did you not have to? Well, you know, that's an interesting thing, because I was at college during that time, so this shift was very apparent to me. I had been someone who, throughout the 1980s, as a high school kid, had listened to Guns N' Roses and Kiss and Motley Crue. That was sort of the backbone of the soundtrack of my life during that period. So when 
musical culture really started to shift in 91, there was definitely tension. I mean, I remember many arguments over whether or not Nirvana could be classified as heavy metal. Was Pearl Jam uh, essentially a, a, a new classic rock band uh, sort of connected to the 70s? Or was it this completely new idea uh, that was really separate, like had almost more ties to punk music as kind of filtered through rock? I myself was kind of able to straddle that world. I was, I've always been kind of the person where it's like, I feel like I can uh, exist in, in kind of a contradictory space without much difficulty. So I did not really push back. I was sort of like, well, maybe they'll coexist together. But what became very clear is those two genres of music could not coexist. And the culture of the 80s, the fashion of the 80s, all of those things did not gradually disappear. They just evaporated. And this new culture kind of t- took over. And it was a very long time, probably 10 years, before there was any attempt to kind of go back and uh, kind of rediscover some of that music that had been seemingly eliminated by the advent of grunge. So, Chuck, for instance, if they could not coexist, even if you were Switzerland, so to speak, but if the two really could not coexist, was the conflict musically based or maybe was it more ideological? Oh, it was definitely more ideological. When you look, when you listen to a record like Nirvana's Nevermind, even at the time, like one of Kurt Cobain's complaints about it was he felt it sounded too much like a Motley Crue record. He complained that it sounded like Dr. Feelgood. It was really the fashion of the artists and particularly just sort of their express out, like, outlook on life. Where in the 1980s, the idea of a band was, let's be as big as possible. Let's take over the world. We aspire to be huge. We want to be rock stars. What was so different about grunge was this kind of self-awareness that, oh, this is like a, a ridiculous premise, and it's a false premise that's created by the music industry. And the band themselves pushed back against that and kind of took on this posture that there was nothing more humiliating than success, which is why when we look at grunge now, we sort of see it as this music that was very downtrodden, um, uh, dark, uh, even though it had a lot of the, the qualities that we just associate with like hard rock from any period, the atmosphere was different. And that's really when you see rock music sort of recede from the center of youth culture. Because once any art form becomes aware of what it is, uh, it has a very difficult time transcending, uh, you know, the artifice and moving into these larger ideas. One hundred percent. So then, and you touch on this. Obviously, it's a big theme. But how strong was the paranoia of selling out at that time? I mean, it's sort of the central idea of the '90s, which is just gone now. It's something you just don't hear at all. You, if you if you try to explain the kind of complexity of selling out to a new young person. Uh, it might be just completely baffling. Like, they wouldn't even understand what the premise was. If you had tried this 10 years ago, they may have understood it, but just kind of saw it as, as like, ridiculous. Why would you want to not have commercial success with a commercial product? But in the 90s, this was kind of baked into everything. This idea that it was not a time for the aspirant. You were not supposed to attempt to uh, change or compromise anything you did to appeal to people who were outside of your peer group. And if you did, that was some kind of, it was damaging to your integrity in a way that uh, seemed more significant than sort of the commercial or celebrity upside of it. it it's, and it's very specific to that time. I mean, the concept of selling out starts way back, you know, 
Bob Dylan or whatever. But it, it was it really at its apex in the 90s as a social problem. You know? I, I remember it strongly. Clones, what do you want when you're craving protein or you need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. You want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest. It goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you do not see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper or what's your beef? You know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I remember it exactly. I remember the first time when I started hearing a major band, like, do a commercial for a car. Like, are you kidding me? Like, there's no way they're doing that. Like, what's going on? I mean, were you in any way judgmental at that time? Or if not, if you were more objective about it, what would you consider a major sellout at that time? Do you remember seeing one that greatly disappointed you? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, Jim, because I was I was judgmental in a sense, but more so among people I knew personally in sort of my consumption of media, I think maybe because of that experience I had in the eighties where I was like into bands like kissing guns and roses, I did not want to, I, I, I somehow felt these groups should push back against this and, 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 you know, uh, for lack of a better term, like try harder, like try to make it. Like I wanted my, the bands I like to be huge, but in my personal life, it was this major thing. Like, it was just like a, the, the idea of of somebody who would, quote unquote, like play the game in order to get ahead career wise and all these things. Uh, I, we were extremely judgmental of that. So, and, and yet, my, my normal desire, my kind of natural desire, was to, you know, be a writer, be successful, have people read my work. Like, I didn't want that. So, it was like a paralyzing fear that I was also forced to ignore. That's always the complexity of this selling out kind of question. It was like you had to adhere to these rules, but at the same time you had to recognize that the rules were insane and that they were really contradictory and didn't make a lot of sense and seemed self-destructive and self-defeating. I mean, I think this is why a lot of people our age, like I'm going to be 50, I think you're a little older than me. Um, Like I, I think that we remember this period as like, it was a complicated time to try to achieve success because you were not just worried about whether or not what you were doing was working, but what would it mean if it did work? Would you somehow be a different person? Would everything that you aspired to do be changed simply because your audience grew? It's such a great point. I mean, Chuck, it's kind of like counterintuitive, right? Even even as a writer, like you're putting your heart and soul into this. You want this to be well-received. You want this to be respected. Hence, you want to sell books. But if it's popular, are you selling out? I mean, is this not counterintuitive? How did you approach that? How do you approach it? I mean, it, it absolutely is. I mean, this, you know, you think to yourself, well, I'm trying to write something that people will like. 
So I succeed at this because, you know, I've written well and you know, they, they find the ideas interesting. The book is therefore going to be popular. And if it becomes popular, I'm going to make money. So in other words, to be a good writer, the end result of that in many ways does have this kind of success that you're supposed to be uncomfortable with because that success somehow cheapens the original thing you're doing. I mean, like, I don't know, was this an issue in the world of radio even? Like, you know, because I, I just kind of wanted to tell you this. I hope this is cool. But like when I think of the late 90s, um, you're actually a strangely big part of it to me. So I had moved to Akron, Ohio in 1998 to work at the Akron Beacon Journal. I worked in Fargo, got this job in Ohio. I didn't know anyone in Akron. It was kind of weird and unsettling. But every day at noon, I would leave the office, usually at 5 to noon, to go to this Chinese restaurant to get lunch. And I would wait to hear the song Lust for Life to come on so then I could listen to your radio show. And sometimes I would just drive around for two hours and listen to it. There are still things from that period of your career I remember so vividly, like the idea of Isaiah Thomas going to a Red Lobster. I remember that being a huge part of it. I remember like Kenny Lofton would be on a lot. Or like during the NBA lockout, Don McClain was always on. I, I remember this period where you had your son and it was very scary because like, you were going to come back and you just didn't come back for the longest time. And there was this growing fear that something had gone wrong with the birth. I remember all these things like they just happened. And yet now it's like 20 years ago. I, I can't believe it. Chuck, that is, that is I'm just mind blown. I, I am absolutely my jaw hit the ground that you have that kind of recall and that you remember all those things. I mean, there are people, I've done this a long, long time, you know, like you've done what you've done a long time. And people constantly say, you know, I've listened to you for 20 years and you helped me get through this, but you just cited so many specific examples and many of which that do not come up. And because I think as highly of you as I do, and I'm almost like, I'm not intimidated, but because you have such a critical ear and eye, I'm amazed. And I, I'm really super gratified that you remember the show like that. And it really is something, you know, part of the point is, where did 20 years go? Like, I am a little bit older than you, maybe a little bit more than a little bit older than you. And I actually started a podcast called The Reinvention Project. I'm trying to find a way to slow time down, Chuck, because whereas I always thought that I appreciated everything in that moment, now as I look back, I could have appreciated it so much more. Like, what do we do with time? Where where did 20 years go? Because I don't know about you, Chuck, that feels like 20 minutes ago to me in a lot of ways. And I don't even mean that as hyperbole. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. And part of this is just, you know, uh, I think a, a, a completely normal part of aging. I mean, like, okay, so my son is eight. So uh, for him, a year is an eighth of his life. You know, so that's that, you know, an eighth of our life now is much greater. So a year to us is just a fraction of our life. For me, it's like, you know, one fiftieth of my life now. So of course, time is going to feel faster because of that, because everything is relative. And we're measuring time in the same way even though our actual time on Earth is expanding. I do sense, though, that something has also changed about the way people experience time. I think that from really, you know, and I'm talking more like from a media perspective, following World War II up to the 20th century, we kind of moved in this linear path where things were experienced, we moved on culturally. If you wanted to go back to something, you actually had to almost turn around on this, you know, the road and move back like like you know there was almost a, a a sense that the scenery around you the the reality around you was sort of changing uh as you move through time and it gave you a real sense of that whereas now because of the internet all culture 
through all time is instantly accessible. We can get information from 1972 as easily as information from earlier this morning. You know, like we can, I can find a press conference uh, from the, the mid '80s as easily as I can rewatch like the Ben Simmons press conference from yesterday. And what that's doing is it's actually decelerating time, but giving us no sense that it's moving. So time seems to almost disappear because now, in a weird way, we're in this kind of sense of perpetual now where kind of all time is happening at once. It is very strange. I think this alienation that you're talking about is not something specific to you or me. I think it's a very normal thing to feel now that something about the movement of time has changed. The best athletes know that your championship body is not built in a day. The same is true when it comes to your long-term financial goals. Get financially fit with M1, the finance super app. It's commission-free, and it makes growing your money easier so you can strategize for the end game. Build a custom portfolio or choose a pre-built portfolio that speaks to your goals. Then, automate your everyday money moves and use your extra time to watch the highlights. They even make it easy to stick to your investing strategy by automatically rebalancing your investments every time you buy into your portfolio, keeping your investments close to where you want them. That way, your portfolio sticks to the plan for the long game. No huddle-ups necessary. Visit m1finance.com sports. That's M with the number one. Sign up and see why money Investopedia and Yahoo Finance are proud super fans of M1. That's M, the number one dot com slash sports. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. M1 Finance LLC, member FINRA SIPC. This book is called The 90s, a book. And Chuck, I'm glad you mentioned the internet. I was going to go there next, but really quickly, just to button up that other point about my son and the point that you referenced, I'm still blown away that you remember that particular day. It's true. I literally, for the only time I think in my entire career, I left a show before the show was over because my wife Janet was giving birth to our first son, Jake. To give you an idea of how long ago that was, he is a junior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and soon to turn 21. How wild is that? I mean, I don't know. if That that means something to some of my listeners because they do remember that show, but you remember that show, so that should give you an idea about how quickly time goes. Well, it, it, it does. I mean, I guess, you know, and for him, though, it probably doesn't seem quick. Like, I bet if you, your son's sense of time is much different than yours. Whereas if, you know, if, um, uh, if, if you were talking to him about, say, you know, something that happened in 2010 or like the election of Barack Obama or something like that, your son would perceive that as almost deep history. Mm-hmm. Like he might have some memory of it, but, you know, uh, but it's very vague, you know, or, and, and it's, he can't really specify like what he was like at the time or any of that. But for you, that's a, a recent event. I mean, it feels very recent. I mean, I had a, a, a professor, a teacher in high school. My, I guess he was my, my world history or U.S. history teacher when I was a junior. And I remember him saying the hardest part of his job was talking to people, us, the class, who see the moon landing the same as the Civil War. And at the time, I was like, what the hell is this dude talking about? It's like, <laughs> I know that they're different, but now I know exactly what he means. It has nothing to do with the events themselves, but they are both events that, because they predate me, are in the same sort of ocean of history that I can't 
feel something the way he could feel it because of his memory. Well said. What I would give for my son, either one of my sons, but mostly my older son especially, to, to understand what it was like to have that PowerBook Macintosh back in the day that carried a charge for maybe an hour that I would plug the phone jack directly into, get something really good going on AOL, only to have a caller pop in and knock me offline and not be able to get back <laughs> online. What I would give for them to understand that or see that because it's almost impossible to explain. I mean, intellectually, they understand it, but it's an experience. Ne- never mind the black and white screen. Like, how do we, how did we see, Chuck, the internet at that time? For instance, what were the expectations when it started to kind of become a thing? Did we expect it to change our lives? In other words, did we have any idea we would end up where we are right now? Okay, well, so, you know, almost from its inception, we were informed that the internet was going to change our lives. There was really never a time where the internet was not seen as something that was going to be like foundationally shifting of the world. It was always described in that way. However, it was always described as coming. We are two years off or three years off. We were two years away in 1993. We were still two years away in 1995, even though that's when Amazon was introduced, uh, Craigslist, all these things that still exist. But it was like, well, you know, people aren't really comfortable using their credit card over the Internet or whatever. It'll be coming. It'll be coming. Uh, in 1998, it was still coming. It's like soon everyone's going to be on AOL and all these things. And then suddenly, almost invisibly, it went from this thing that was gradually encroaching to this thing that was absolutely everywhere in an almost inescapable way. I mean, like there's this old quote, you know, like from the Sun Altar Rises where somebody's asked, like, well, how did you go bankrupt? And the guy says two ways gradually then suddenly and that's kind of how the internet was too it was this gradual chuck 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 i never do this i'm so sorry i have to i have to because i think so highly of you as a writer when i was in college i took a class on hemingway and i took a class on fitzgerald and you know how english professors can be you know wink they drink a lot some of them but we had this great debate the Great Gatsby or the Sun Also Rises. Tell me you will not go Switzerland on this. Which one was better? Well, for me, it's the Sun Also Rises. Yes. Thank yeah, God you okay. said that. Finally. Why? I'm okay. always fighting that fight the other way. Of course it was the Sun Also Rises. Well, the thing with the Great Gatsby is is that, you know, as somebody from North Dakota, the fact that Gatsby comes from Fargo was kind of significant to me. Sure. But I, I think from a pure, like, like, uh, I just think that especially when you look at writing as a journalist, so much of journalism now is weirdly based on Hemingway's writing style, the short declarative sentence, yes. uh, the removal of things like adverbs and adjectives while still getting description across. I mean, it's, Hemingway is influential to people who don't even like Hemingway, who associate themselves as not reading his work or seeing him just as like this kind of bygone, masochistic, you know, macho dude, like what, what he like, what he added to the writing world is actually much greater than Gatsby. He was also, of course, brilliant. Um, well, one thing that's interesting about this Internet talk, though, uh, yeah. Jim, is that we are. Thank I you for indulging this. me, by the way. Thank you. But go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, in 98, 99, when you were doing the jungle, did you feel that when the like, especially like the sports media blogosphere sort of kind of came alive in like 2003 or four, whatever, that what they were really just doing was replicating the relationship that you had with your callers during that period, because it was very similar where there were shows where it was almost like the guys parroting you and coming back on the show was the center of the show. Like, 
that that you would sort of introduce the idea, and then all these people would kind of come in and sort of try to give their takes in, in a fashion exactly like yours, like in the exact same cadence, same language, same jokes. I saw that a lot with like sports websites in the early 2000s, where the commentators and the people who were in the commentating class were actually the people driving those sites, even though all they were trying to do was replicate what the site had started. I wonder if you feel like in some ways you helped invent the internet. <laughs> the internet, but that—that's. That, I always thought it was it was Gore who did that. I. It's funny, Chuck. First of all, that, that's an amazing thing you just asked me. I would say I don't know that I had anything to do with inventing the internet. I know Mark Cuban's always said something to me. And I've never really understood this. I think that he says it half in jest or half not. But he says that because they had rights to the jungle early on, that they did with some deal with the company that I work for. It helped. He said I made him a whole lot of money. On broadcast.com. I'm not really sure what that is. And I don't know if he's poking fun at me or if I really did. So, well, I mean, Mark that, Cuban kind of got lucky. He, he got into this thing and right. sold it all. But I right. think the value of what he sold was partially because of things like that. I think. I think. So that's what I'm saying. I think that when he kind of says to me, hey, Romy, I really owe you a big thank you. I think part of that... I think he's saying it not in jest. I think that at that time, because of the timing, there was something to it. Like, I always felt like, for better or for worse, love me or hate me, I've got something to do with the genre, right? Just the genre because of the timing. Because I came up, and I came up at a time, and I had a very different idea that was replicated and emulated and hated, but there was a response to it. So I think to answer your question, Chuck, I think I have something to do with the evolution of the genre, but I never thought that I had anything at all to do with the internet. Like, for instance, if I could take credit for Prodigy or AOL or anything like that, that'd be awesome. But no, I, I never really saw my yeah, place well, on the internet. I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean the mechanics of the internet. Right. I mean sort sure. of the attitude of yeah. the people who say are on Twitter now, for mm -hmm. example. In some ways, it does seem as if that captures kind of the essence of what a lot of the people who called the show were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Sort of I, take, I, take I, if I had known, wants. if I had known it was going to become so, so, and this is funny, not, again, not to be counterintuitive, so vitriolic, vitriolic. Listen, I was never based in hate. My thing always was, have a take, don't suck. Have a take, don't suck. Like, my thing was, I, here's the thing I figured out. I never thought that I was overly talented. I never thought that I was the smartest guy in the room. I never really thought that there was anything to distinguish me from anybody except for one thing. I was actually pretty good at self-auditing. And I was able to ask myself important questions early in my career. All right. How are you different? How are you different? Answer, you're not. You're really not different than anybody or anything. You did not play the game. You don't have this great look. You don't have this great voice. How are you different? Well, one way to be different is to be different. And I just knew that what I heard, Chuck, was always the exact same thing in the early origins of sports talk radio. Some guy with a giant voice who would answer a bunch of questions. And I would think to myself, that's not very entertaining. But in the meantime, off to the side, to your point about the people you'd be around, and you didn't want to sell out. Off to the side, me and my guys who were addicted to sports were just talking shit. And I thought to myself, this is fun. I've got a passion about this. If I ever get a show, I'm going to be real. I'm going to be aggressive. And it's just going to be different. And I think to your point, the long answer is, I think that I was always very... Uh, I, I had a take. I was going to be very definitive in what I said, and I was going to make sure that I backed it up, and it was going to be fearless and well-researched, and then maybe it kind of spun into what it's become today, hot take nation. 
Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I bet you did go through a period where you were criticized for that when that was the rising thing, and they were like, well, he used to you know, literally call these things takes, you know, that's part of it. I think it was more just kind of a like a, a little philosophical shift. On, on sports talk radio, it was always like some guy calling up saying, like, we got to fire the coach. You know, whoever the coach is, we got to fire him. And your show was more like, isn't it kind of funny to talk about firing the coach? Yeah. Like, isn't it just sort of amusing that, you know, uh, you know, this guy, 7-2 or whatever at Florida, and they want to get him fired. Like, isn't it kind of funny that we're talking about this? That, like, this guy who's lost twice should lose his job? And then I suppose some people did take it a little more seriously, and they, they actually put actual anger into it. But, like, your stuff never felt, as you say, it never seemed angry to me. Like, even when you were just the Orenthal OJ stuff, that it was on every day, you know. But it was. And by the way, still is, Chuck. That's the problem. I can't eradicate that. Like, that still goes on. (laughs) But, but see, Chuck. I suppose if you wrote it that long, it's like you can't expect people to. Chuck, this is why not only did I always. I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long and not for this reason, but I always held you in such high regard. But the thing I always felt about my show, our show, was. Either you got it or you didn't, and I couldn't explain it to you. And it was not that it was so inside. Just and, and people would be like, hey, man, it's like it's appealing to the lowest common denominator. No, it's not. I always felt like smart people got the show because they were smart. It was funny. It was smart. It was tough. But, like, you understood. And the thing about the show was then it became – like there was a culture. It became it developed a whole culture. The show within the show, and then the show became the biggest topic on the show. And I had to kind of navigate my way through that. I guess what I'm trying to say is I really appreciate that you understood the show because not everybody did, but you got it clearly. Uh, well, I, mean, I think I did. I mean, you know, it, it, I, I was, know you did. It kind of, in some ways, you know, Jim, it was kind of a show. I mean, maybe I'm speaking too personally, kind of for lonely people in a way. Because it was like you were talking, because some of the people were on all the time, right? There was some of those guys who would, like, be in the smack, off or whatever. They were, they were the same people. I never met any of these people, right? I never called into your show. I never did anything like that. But I would hear these things, and they get real comfortable hearing the same people. You know, it, it does create a sense of community. I, you know, I, I, I probably did appeal to a lot of guys like me who were, like, young guys in their 20s. And it's like, I got no one to talk to for two hours. I'm going to have this guy and his little cadre of parrots kind of talk to me for a couple hours. It's the truth. By the way, you're like most people. I mean, our studies have always indicated that the number of people who call the radio show is like 2% or less of the listening audience. Most people would never, ever call a radio show. You know, there's greater engagement right now because of social media, but you're right. This podcast is brought to you by DirecTV Stream. I love this product. I use it. Now, let me ask you this. Does this sound familiar? You've got the one device that allows you to catch the game live, another one that lets you stream your favorite programs, you watch sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbors, best friends, log in for all the good stuff. Listen, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all of that entertainment that you love without all that hassle. It's called DirecTV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the best part, there is no annual contract. Get rid of the clutter and the confusion. Get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. 
And if you're driving around in your car back in the day, and now people consume content, as you know, in very different ways, but back in the day when it was just the radio or just the TV, and, and I really appreciate this conversation because I want to talk to you about TV too, but, and the book is called The 90s, A Book. Chuck, it used to be back in the day that if that was the only way to get the show and you could not stream it and it was in the car or on the radio, there was a very personal connection. It was not me talking to 200 stations or a few million people. It was me talking to that one person. So there really was that connection. I mean, well, wow. And it could be crazier. Like, right. it could, because it disappeared, it could be crazier. Like, sometimes you would hear stuff on the, there and be like, I kind of can't believe that guy just said that. But there was no risk to anyone because he said it, it went up, and it was gone. So it was like, I, I do miss that part of it, you know? Right, in the ether. It's gone. It's gone. Now Now everything is in ink and recorded and documented. And, you know, like I, I am older and certainly I, I can't say the things that I used to say or I don't want to say the things that I used to say. But, you know, we are playing without a net and you want to make sure that you're compelling and you're still kind of sort of dangerous but not reckless and it really is a very different time, to be sure. Let me ask you this, and, and I so appreciate all that, Chuck. The book is called The 90s, A Book. Um, you, like, I would say you probably would be skeptical, right, if anybody would say, that band changed my life, or that movie changed my life, yet you've said that the movie Slacker changed your life. How so? Well, okay, so the movie Slacker was the first sort of film by uh, a guy named Richard Linklater, who's m more famous now for the movie Dazed and Confused. Uh, he made a movie called Boyhood that he got nominated for an Academy Award. But his first movie was this low-budget film called Slacker. And if, if someone has no idea what that film is, what was unique about it was there was no plot at all. You would start with a character. The character would be there for two or three minutes. It, uh, meet another character and then you would see that person for two or three minutes. Then that character would intersect with somebody and you'd see five minutes with someone else. So if you're watching it and you think that a story is going to emerge, it never happens. And yet you get a real sense of what the theme of this film is and what this, it was shot in Austin, Texas. And you get a real clear idea of what kind of person was sort of living in the counterculture, sort of like, you know, in their early 20s, not making much money, but really engaged with life in Austin during that time. I was a, a college student at the University of North Dakota. I got this weird work-study job where I have to count maps in the geography department. Hmm. So for two hours a day, I literally just count maps. And I go home to my apartment when my roommate's watching this movie Slacker in the middle of the afternoon. He's maybe watched 20 minutes of it. And he's like, I think you want to watch this. So he rewinds it, and we watch the movie straight through and then immediately watched it again. And I think for both of us, it just completely altered our conception of how you can tell a story or what is creative or like what we think is weird and what is actually weird. And while I am very skeptical of people who say like this band changed my life or this movie changed my life, I feel like it did because even though, you know, I don't go back and rewatch this movie or much like I think about this still, you know, 30 some years later. So, I mean, that can happen. And I do think that one great, part of being a young adult is that if you see the right thing at the right point in your life, it can change the trajectory in a way that you will never stop experiencing. Like I'm, I probably don't write a book about the nineties if I don't see this movie in 1992. I mean, Chuck, seriously, did you, you watch that movie twice that day? Have you seen that movie since? 
Oh, sure. I've probably okay. seen it 20 times. Okay, good. But, I was going to say, yeah. if that if that day changed your life, that'd be something. But I can understand where you would say that movie changed your life. What about TV? What was TV like in the 90s, for those who don't remember or weren't there? How did that shape the way we thought and viewed the world? Well, it was actually one of the things that has changed uh, more than most things, even though in many ways it looks the same. We're still using the, a, a, a similar technology. There's still networks. Sports programming is kind of thing. But the big difference was that in the 90s, shows were much, much more popular and yet also less significant. And what I mean by this is that, say, like the last episode of Game of Thrones, the finale of Game of Thrones, or even the finale of The Sopranos, which is a ways away now. Um, these were like these huge marquee events that you would read about in the New York Times and the Washington Post before they would happen. There was this idea that everyone needed to comment on whether or not they were satisfying, did the story complete itself, all of these things. And yet, any random episode of Seinfeld or Friends was more popular and watched by more people than the finale of Game of Thrones because the way television was structured was different. And yet, at the same time, with these shows being watched by so many more people, they didn't have this sort of umbrella of prestige around them. Like nobody would, there was no fear that if you saw an episode of ER and you went to work the next day, that you couldn't talk about it because you might spoil it. Nobody thought of television in that way. Television was not perceived as that important. It was very common. I'm sure you remember this. People in the 90s who were like, I don't even own a TV. Like that was the way you could signal to people that you were sort of more urbane and intelligent by saying you didn't even have a television at all. So these shows were, that were part of the monoculture, that were watched by huge, massive audiences, were also more disposable. But what it gave people was sort of a connecting fluid that, well, we're all kind of experiencing the same kind of entertainment. We're not into niche ideas. Like a show, that, like, a show that's on um, you know, CBS uh, in 1994, it may not even be a program that I watch, and yet I have some understanding of it because I see the commercials constantly. I see it in TV Guide. I know people who watch it. We have a shared culture. And what has changed about society is we have much less of a shared culture, even though the possibility for sharing ideas has increased. Chuck, do you know what was, and this would have to be if you go back and you work from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. and you write The 80s, a book, um, we would talk about this, but just this is kind of sidebar. But one TV show, I don't know whether or not you saw this or if it appealed to you. It literally was one of my favorite days of my entire career when a producer by the name of John Ants and I, we worked at Fox Sports Net, and I did the show called The Last Word with Jim Rome. And we both hit on this concept that we both were absolutely obsessed with the white shadow. And I said, what if we can bring together, and this was a half-hour daily TV show, which meant maybe 21 minutes of content without commercials, if we could do a reunion show. And it was normally a three-segment show, and we were able to squeeze a fourth segment where we got a number of the actors, and we were able to talk about that show. I just thought that was the most amazing TV show, and I'm sidebarring and editorializing. Did you have any connection to that TV show? Did that resonate with you at all? Okay, well, I was, you know, th th that's sort of like a you know, late 70s, early 80s thing. Early 80s, kid, for sure. I, yeah, I, yeah, I love sports, right? So I'm going to watch any show that has some under you know undercurrent of sports in it. I really remember the opening credits because like uh, you know the guy who plays Coach Reeves or whatever Ken Howard he's for the that yep. he's heard for the Milwaukee I think he's playing for the Milwaukee Bucks. No Chicago Bulls, right? 
Was it the Bulls? I think okay. it was the Bulls. I I re- but yeah. I, I do often wish that, like, there had been, as a kid, I was like, I wish there was more basketball on this. Like, I wish we saw, like, Coolidge play more or whatever. But I, I totally watched that show. I remembered all those characters. I remember when Coolidge and Salami both appeared in an episode of St. Elsewhere. Right. Yeah, and they and they had to pretend like one pretended like he recognized him and the other guy didn't, and there was kind of all these sliding door stuff. So yeah, I totally watched that show for sure. Salami went on; he's had a great career as a director. That's Tim Van Patten. All right, so let me ask you this before you go, and what, what an amazing conversation this is. You know, political engagement is not only seemingly, Chuck, mandatory right about now, but as you point out, it, it wrecks friendships and relationships, even families at Thanksgiving. It's so toxic. I do not remember anything like this back then. What were those times like in regards to that and those conversations? Well, okay, so there, there's, a, there's a temptation to just be like, the world has gotten crazy now. It used to be like people were more sensible. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to do that because that does sort of uh, put me in a position where that could be like false nostalgia, where like I'm, I'm injecting what I want into the past. But I will say this. I mean, you know, the 90s were politically a lower stakes time. Like we weren't involved in any hot or cold war. There was like the economy was good. And the idea that if you really disagreed with someone politically, at least in my memory and in my experience, that could actually prompt a friendship. Like you meet someone and you have a, you have a strong disagreement about Bob Dole or whatever, but you're like, well, at least there's somebody else who knows about Bob Dole. We can have a real, like a sophisticated adult conversation. The fact that we diametrically oppose each other ideologically isn't something that ends this friendship. It maybe actually kind of galvanizes it. And that I, I do. I think a lot of people, especially people of our generation, who really miss this. That the idea that a disagreement was not something that ends your interaction with someone or forces you to see them as an opponent, but it's actually something that can make you become closer because you at least have a shared interest, even if those interests, like, they, they don't replicate each other. So now when I hear people talk about, like, oh, I got to go home at Thanksgiving, this is how you, you know, avoid talking to your uncle, it's like, you can't fucking talk to your uncle for three hours, even though we, I, I can't believe it. And I can't believe that people are proud of it or happy about the fact that somehow their rigid political worldviews can end family relationships. I just, that, that seems really socially negative to me. But, you know, sometimes I think, is it just because I was used to something else? And maybe in the 90s, I should have cared more about these things. And maybe if there's some sort of, you know, flaw in me, an amoral flaw or something that doesn't seem someone who disagrees with me as my enemy, but I just don't, you know? That dumb fuck Uncle John, what a stupid <laughs> motherfucker he is, man. I'll never talk to that guy ever again. It's so great. So finally, 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 Chuck, generations, when you talk about generations, you write the Generation X is the least annoying of the still existent generations, which of course is true. But then again, I am a Gen Xer. Why are we less annoying? <laughs> well, okay. So what's funny is many people have brought this one sentence up from my book. In fact, I think every interview I've given, and I've given a lot for this book, at some point somebody has asked me about this one line. where I Why? Say it's right. It's right. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to interrupt you. It's right. I don't know why people are so worked up about that, but go ahead. Well, but I, I, I'm glad you brought it up because there's a couple of things I want to say about it. Good. One is that nobody ever mentions the sentence that immediately follows this in the book, which is, this is mostly due to size. 
because there are less Gen Xers than there are baby boomers or millennials. So even if everyone was all equally annoying, Generation X would be less annoying because there's fewer of them. But even beyond that, you know, it does to me seem pretty clear that the baby boom generation complained in a way that was very pedantic, very often about how they had changed the world and they had given the world all of these things and nobody seemed to appreciate it. And it does seem like the generation that comes after Generation X, the millennials, they have a more, I don't know, an, almost an anger to their complaining that, that they were sort of robbed from the life experience they deserved by previous generations using up all the resources. Now, Generation X people, we complained all the time, too. We complained about baby boomers. We complained about commercialism. But it was less aggressive. And it was more, it, there, was, there seemed to be uh, a higher acceptance of just sort of being vaguely unhappy. Like, if you're just kind of vaguely unhappy about the world, it, you know, it, it wasn't seen as that terrible of a thing. You could just sort of accept that. Um, what I also think is just fascinating about this and maybe proves the point that Gen X was the least annoying generation was in that same section of the book where I make that sort of you know, at, you know, claim. I also claim that Generation Xers are the least significant canonical generation and that perhaps their apathy was sort of a self-constructed thing that uh, avoided them from sort of emotionally engaging. I haven't had one Generation X person complain about me saying that. Not one. Not one person has said, how dare you say our generation was not very significant. And yet every other generation sees me saying Gen X is, un is not that annoying and is outraged. So the fact that people in the demographic of Generation X are very comfortable being criticized, is kind of proof they're not annoying. 100%. What's more annoying than complaining? Yeah. No, I mean, exactly. I mean, what's... Please, this is polarizing. This is dispute. This is not disputable in any way. I, I totally agree with you. We're not offended by that. Uh, I, I'm offended that they're offended. I'm offended that they're offended. <laughs> There's nothing polarizing in that statement. It is true. You know what's annoying? Everybody else. How about that? Is that pretty smart? Is that a good smart take? <laughs> Everybody except us, Chuck, is annoying. That, that pisses me off that they're pissed off about that. Chuck, I cannot tell you what a, what a fascinating, awesome, awesome time that was. This book is called The 90s, a book. I will fawn for a moment. It's brilliant, like everything you've done. What an honor and a thrill to talk to you, Chuck. That was just so much fun. I did not mean to take up so much of your time, but thank oh, no, you very it much for it. Talk to you, Jim. I tell you what, if I could have went back to 1998 when I'm sitting in my car listening to you talk about Isaiah Thomas going to the Red Lobster, and I'd be like, oh, you know, in 20-some years, so probably be talking to me about my book, I'd have been blown away. So this is a pleasure to me. <laughs> well, that, that, I appreciate you saying that and the fact that you are resetting Red Lobster. And by the way, they still do. It still comes up. People still bring that up. And that was a classic, classic time. Congratulations on the book. Chuck, you're a fascinating person. Thank you very much. And what an honor to talk to you, too. Okay. Bye-bye, Jim. What an amazing conversation. I got to admit, I did not see that veering off into a Zeke at Red Lobster reset and a breakdown of the jungle's role in the rise of internet culture. But that's what you get with Chuck Klosterman. A perspective that is really intelligent and really different and insight that you pretty much cannot get anywhere else from anybody else. He gets my main hustle, and he gets the side hustle too, and he just murdered it. That was such an absolute blast. 
Now, if you're looking for more extended, unfiltered, and premium insight that you cannot find anywhere else, you are in luck because we have a lot more on the way, such as episode 210, which will drop next week at this time. Until then, check out any of the 200-plus conversations that we already have banked because they are all worth the spin. And take a second to subscribe, too, if you haven't already. That way, you will never have to track down another episode. It will always find its way to you instead. And while you find that subscribe button, let me leave you with your voicemails. First new message. Jim, what a game. If I can quote The Rock, I'd like to say, the champions of the NFC, the Cincinnati Bengals. As a longtime San Diego Charger fan and short-time L.A. Charger hater, it felt really good to see the Rams win, to see Eric Weddle get his ring, and now the L.A. Chargers are officially the Clippers of L.A. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. It's Rob from Reno. Well, it finally happened. It had been a while, but I had another dream involving you and your show. This one involved Global Warming Guy. There was somehow this big celebration, like he had won some sort of award, and he was about to give his acceptance speech, and everybody in the audience was like, is he going to give us the hits, or is he just going to, like, say thank you and thank his family or something? And lo and behold, he went up to the mic, and he said, Christie Alley, Val Kilmer, Global Warming, and the audience just went crazy. It was amazing. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Rome, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. I'll tell you one thing. That Super Bowl was won because of the trenches. That's the bottom line. You can talk all you want about skill position, guys. You win and lose games up front, and Aaron Donald was a beast. He overpowered the Bengals' offensive line, and that was the reason the Rams got it done. But I'll tell you one thing. Aaron Donald should have been the MVP. Cooper Cup had a great game, but the bottom line is Aaron Donald put himself in the conversation with Bruce Smith and Reggie White as one of the greatest defense alignments ever. Romy, thanks for the vine, man. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. Bella B in Calgary. I have sort of an ATP podcast style. Now that the NFL season is over, what will Big Head Bets talk about? Will we talk about any hockey? I'd like to know. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. It's Alex in Wisconsin. Although I'm totally bummed that my Bengals lost. I'm so excited for the future of the Who Days. Excited for Andrew Whitworth because that guy's awesome. There was a play at the end of the game where the entire Rams offensive line committed a false start. But I don't want to complain about the referees. I'd rather see the NFL fix the overtime rules so they won't have to see the garbage that happened between the Chiefs and the Bills again. One more time, who day, and I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Jimmy Jim, what's up? It's Dr. Dave. You know, I just got back from the Chicago Auto Show with my son. But holy crap, like if all these companies are going to be spending tens of million dollars for a crappy 30-second ad at the Super Bowl, the least they can do is actually show up at the world's largest auto show. Either way, though, Jim, you know, the Super Bowl was great, but what the fuck was up with 50 Cent? It didn't look so fitty, more like Fatty Cent, 69 Cent. I'm sure Gronk would probably be happy with that. Maybe we'll just call him 250 Cent. Later, bitches. Message deleted. Next message. Ramo Romy, Justin from Melbourne, congratulations on your win. But I tell you what, man, the one thing I've learned about these playoffs, I am sick and tired of everyone claiming that Jalen Ramsey is one of the greatest. That guy got his ass burnt. 
two consecutive games. This guy is so overrated, dude. This guy couldn't hold Darrell Revis's jock on his best day. Message saved. You have no more messages.